All right, Romans 12, verses 1 through 8. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Alright, so handout. Decisive Humility 2. We're going to just continue down here with verse 3. And I'm going to be going through them quickly. And my goal is to get to the list. Okay, My goal is to get to the list and to focus on that. So verse 3, For I say... Through the grace given to me, everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Basic thing to take away here, Paul received the gift of the office of apostleship, but he also received gifting to fulfill it in terms of revelatory prophecy. He's been given prophecy to be able to speak. So with that gift of prophecy, he is speaking. He's saying this through that gift. And so it's to everyone among you, so it's to the whole church, not just to officers. And so there's this call to humility. So thinking of yourself not more highly than you ought to think, but to think soberly. So that's decisive humility, thinking in such a way that you can make right judgments so you can make decisions. So we move, and there's this idea of doing that according to the measure of faith that you have. The measure of faith that you have in terms of gifting is going to be this. How do you use your gifting? How insightful are you from the Word of God in how to use your gifting? That's going to have to do with understanding the nature of the gifts, understanding what gifts you have, what gifts other people have in the circumstances that you find yourself, and therefore being able to understand the times. The sons of Issachar understood the times and were able to determine how to act. So you have to observe to understand what's going on. You have to have a right view of God and right view of yourself and the people around you. And that's how you know how to use your gifting, right? I might be bad comparatively to other people in broader society to a particular thing, but if I'm better than the group I'm working with at it, then perhaps I'm the one who's supposed to do that. Or I may be awful at it and other people are better at it than me, but they have other callings that are more economically valuable to the church or to their household. And so you look at that and you go, even though they're better at this thing, I should figure it out and stumble around until I'm able to stand in the gap and maybe god will grow that gifting right so you have to look at the circumstances and the needs and your abilities including your ability to learn and you look for opportunity to serve and we all prefer to do the things we're already good at we all prefer to do the things we're already good at because that way from the beginning you get praise so there's oftentimes need to figure out how to do stuff my whole life has been stumbling around figuring out how to do things. And 
that process is not fun, but it is actually way more fun than the alternative. And it grows in how fun it is. The alternative is you don't do things and you don't accomplish things, you don't figure new things out, and you stay in a little comfort zone, and that seems fun, and then you realize, hmm, I'm not really growing. And so it is actually way more fun to try things you don't know how to do and to try to figure out how to do it, even though it brings criticism and even though it's embarrassing to fall. And then as you grow at those things, you become better at them. And so standing in the gap to do things that are needed is a way of serving with humility. We have to look around at the circumstances, at ourselves, work with others to figure out what to do. For Verse 4, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. All right, so point seven, one last thing here about the idea of not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think. We spent most of last time talking about ordering and prioritizing tasks and thinking about your duties that are closer to home versus further away, right? That's order of operation. So one of the things that happens with people who are particularly in disorder is they tend to, out of pride, be unwilling to serve in low places. They have anger about that. They fight and cause strife. There's a lust for power and a grasping for offices. And the funny thing is this often is accompanied with laziness. Okay? And so one of the things that happens is Judges chapter 9, verses 7 to 15 has the parable of the trees, which is one of my favorite parables. Okay? It's amazing. I'm going to read it to you. So Judges chapter 9, verses 7 to 15. This is about the civil kingship. There's a king named Abimelech. And he comes in and kind of takes the throne and kills a bunch of people. Judges chapter 9. Now at his coronation, right afterwards, there's this really flattering story that's told. That's sarcasm, in case you couldn't hear it dripping off of my voice. Judges chapter 9. Verse 7. Now, when they told Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and lifted his voice and cried out. And he said to them, Listen to you, men of Shechem, listen to me, you men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees went forth, the trees once went forth to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Should I cease giving my oil with which they honor God and men and go to sway over trees? Then the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Should I cease my sweetness and my good fruit and go to sway over trees? Alright, so the theme we're getting so far is here's the olive tree. The olive tree is really fruitful, useful. And so the olive tree responds to the offer to rule and says, I don't want to do that. Look at this usefulness I'm displaying. I wouldn't get to do that usefulness anymore if I'm ruling over you. 
Okay, so with the fig tree, the same. Then we get to the vine. The tree said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, should I cease my new wine, which cheers both God and men, and go to sway over trees? Okay, so the olive tree, the fig tree, and the vine have all said no to office. Then all the trees said to the bramble, what fruit does a bramble make? Huh. Nothing useful. The only utility of a bramble is to burn it. Brambles are also relatively short. And for no particular reason, cedars are kind of tall. Well, let's just keep reading. Don't worry, those were they did nothing. Those were those had no point. Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in truth you anoint me as king over you, then come and take shelter in my shade. And if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Short tree, threatening the tall trees. So his threat here is, if you don't let me reign, I'll burn it all down. If I'm made king and this doesn't work out, we will all die. The bramble offers a suicide pact. Okay, so when there are people who have no productivity and they're put into power, they will die to keep their power because they have no productivity and they have no expectation of getting power back after everybody realizes they are bad rulers. Okay, so that's the bramble. Now, if we don't have humility... When we are gifted, we're not going to want to serve other people. We're going to say, I want to enjoy my position of private enjoyment. And if we are not productive, we're going to want to rule over others to gain control over their productivity. And it will lead to a self-destructive society. That's the point of that parable. So, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. Humility is honesty applied to self. And so there's a danger if we think too lowly of ourselves. And the danger is that we will not serve when we ought to serve, like the fig, olive, and vine. And also another form of this thinking too lowly of self is the desire for pity parties, which is an attention-getting sort of pride that desires praise to get out of it. So we don't have time for that. There's too much to do. Time is short. There's no greater adventure than to serve God. There's no higher calling than to use your gifts and service to God according to the law. So look for ways to serve. Think of yourself rightly. This is necessary to be of service well. Now, here's what I want to say. There's a tendency amongst people to hang back and to not take initiative in general, this is the general population. To hang back and not take initiative. To not say, can I do this thing? The fear of failure causes that. Now, when I was in high school, I would, uh, I would volunteer to do everything, and then I wouldn't do it. Because I was arrogant. And I wanted to like get the credit for having volunteered. Like, I'll do this. Have we seen this? But then when nobody was watching... Not doing it was boring. Until the next meeting, when the question was, 
So how did the thing go that you said you would do? So those are two dangers. Is the hanging back and the volunteering to do things that you can't actually fulfill or that there's too much laziness to do. And so that tendency of initiative versus hanging back, you have to be aware of it and look for your own weaknesses. Now, you don't want to overpromise and underdeliver, my failure, and you don't want to avoid promising and therefore not get anything done. So, the other thing to do is to carefully observe yourself and others and to intentionally engage in body life. So you spend time around other people, but not just to be around them. Okay, The, 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 the danger of, of enjoyable community with enjoyable people is to just hang out. The church does not exist to just hang out. Hanging out is an opportunity to figure out how to start getting something done. And so, from there, we think about, we have to evaluate what does God say of us? The law tells you that you're not good enough. The gospel says he forgives you and empowers you. Okay, you're good enough for this thing? No, you're not. You've been forgiven in Christ. You're kind of righteous in Christ. You've given power. And God is going to use you to accomplish good work. So, when you look at yourself, the law is going to show you your failures. You're going to have to evaluate yourself inwardly. And you need other people to give you input. So, we need a culture where it's acceptable and good to tell each other about each other's failures and to encourage each other in each other's gifts. So a lot of times you'll have really affirming places that are like, you're really good at this thing, and this other thing, you're sort of good at it. If it's sort of good, I mean, you're awful. Please don't do it ever again. And in other cultures, you'll have the, you are really bad at this, and I'm telling you this because I love you. You're awful at everything, and at that too, and that. And the thing that you did well, that was a fluke. Don't even try. Sit down and learn. Repent in dust and ashes. Don't talk to me. Don't look me in the eye. So that, right, that's the other tendency. We have to avoid that process, and we have to avoid the really affirming process, which is hard because it's easy to harden yourself to criticize people and just get into that mode. It's also easy to be affirming all the time. And so going back and forth between them is difficult because it takes moderation, and you have to habituate yourself in a more complex way. So we have to do both. We have to say, you are bad at this thing, and you are good at that thing, and you did that badly, but here's how you can improve. And I'm gifted in that. Can I help you at it? Now, when dealing with other people, we can only see the external. So we need to not assume people's motives. What we need to do when we try to look at things is see what can we actually tell in terms of gifting? What can we actually tell in terms of character what's been done. You can't read people's minds, and so you're dealing with evidence, and so we have to interpret charitably when we're unsure. And if we can overlook something, we look for the opportunity to overlook in order to deal with bigger things. 
and when we can't overlook and you can't interpret charitably because it's pretty clear that it's sin, and it's big enough that you can't overlook it, then you need to confront rather than let it fester. And confrontation can be asking clarification, but asking for clarification endlessly is one of the most exasperating experiences that you can ever impose on another human being. And so after maybe one question, you go, here's my concern. I think this, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to explain yourself. The person answers back and either confesses or gives a defense of themselves. If the defense is lame and obviously wrong, then you need to press in and deal with it. You go through the Matthew 18 process. This is how we have body life. This is how we function together. We can't function together without the conflict of seeking peace. Seeking peace means you're trying to have pleasant peace, but you're willing to sacrifice it temporarily for the long-term goal and for long-term pleasant peace. So the general rule is pleasant peace with punctuated points of conflict that are brought to decisive end. Now, in the Kosovo conflict, NATO, there was this big rift in NATO that was made clear. The Europeans had a policy in the Kosovo conflict that you gradually, you bomb a little bit at a time, you gradually increase the rate of bombing until the enemy surrenders, and you're trying to like, kind of gradually ramp it up. The American philosophy was, let's bomb everything, and they'll either be dead or they'll surrender, and we'll go home. The American philosophy of war is the proper philosophy of war. When you go to war, you win. End the thing. Go home. The European philosophy of war is a recipe for perpetual conflict. Um, the entire European powers together did less than 20% of the bombs that were dropped in the Kosovo conflict. Now, I'm not suggesting that the Kosovo conflict was a legitimate war for America to enter into. I'm not trying to suggest that we should have spent our time and money on it. What I'm trying to tell you is, in this war, this is what happened. And one thing is more effective than the other. And the American philosophy of fight to win quickly is the thing to do. Now, that process is how you deal with conflict resolution. You try to go through it, and you try to deal with things in a decisive and clear way. And so that process allows for there not to be perpetual strife. And so you have the duty of self-examination. So there's more about that. I don't have time for any further, so we're going to move on. I've taught in the past on it. If you have more questions, if you get into conflict, feel free to come to me. All right, so we're supposed to think soberly as God given us a measure of faith. If you know someone who has more knowledge and good character in a place that you want to serve, you seek to absorb that knowledge, follow the example, and become more useful. You seek to serve and bless in order to receive. So, what happens in the public schools is people who try to teach are viewed as a nuisance. And so, the students act as though they are entitled to be taught, but they should also act like cats who do not want the teacher's attention. And when the teacher gives them attention, the duty of the student is to cease to pay attention. And so there is this game, as opposed to you have something valuable, you have knowledge 
I am going to bless you. I'm going to seek to obtain that knowledge. I'm going to seek to make it easy for you to teach me. I'm going to seek to make it easy to work together. And I'm going to seek to remove other tasks so that I can have more time to learn from you. If you view knowledge as valuable, that is the way that you will deal with people who have something to teach you about a skill or about doctrine, about some gifting that you want to learn to gain the insight so you have a greater measure of faith to use that gift. And the greatest way to increase your own value is to grow in your own giftedness. The more effectively you can serve, the more value you generate, and the more you will receive rewards and honor. So humility in service brings about greater reward and honor. Now, the church has many members. It's one body with different functions, works, practices. And so we have a list of giftings that are explained that are meant to help us to think about how to work together in that context. Now, go to page 4B, 9B. Okay, We're one body. We have intellectual unity, so we have shared doctrine. We have a legal unity in Christ. This leads to a covenanted uniformity where we swear to have the same doctrine, worship, and government, and to have a unified view of what's right and what's wrong. That's what a church covenant is about. It's about taking the things that have been revealed, arguing through them in history, the church seeking to maintain the gains that have been attained to, and to pass them on so that new gains can be achieved together as a body. That allows for functional unity. When people are learning, you come in, you learn what has been attained to, you commit to do that, and you learn what has been attained to. And when you have attained to what has been attained to already by the church, you then seek to have gains, or you're adding to that. So the church has been around since the creation of the world roughly 6,000 years ago. The scriptures capture the infallible truth of God given to man. The church works to organize and systematize, and that's what offices are given for, to equip the body. Because the Bible is intentionally a difficult book. God made a long book, and he made a book that was meant to require you to compare pieces with pieces. Jesus uses parables. He uses parables not because parables are more clear, but because they are less clear. And he uses less clear language, and the Proverbs are not the easiest thing to read either. Right? You have these less clear passages that are designed to require you to wrestle with the text. Now the scripture as a whole is clear. It can be worked out. It's a systematic whole. It's coherent. Some passages are very easy to understand. But as a whole, it requires skill. So there's portions that are easy to read in immaturity, and there's other portions that require greater maturity and greater knowledge to get as you compare them with each other. And so... The idea of being drawn through that process to grow in maturity. Now, we have different roles, and the purpose of covenanted uniformity is to make it so that there's a place where it's safe to invest. It's safe to give of yourself, knowing that that person is going to, in committed relationship, also pursue to bless and work together. Imagine a church where the mature people are constantly investing in people who then leave. That church will never grow to maturity because what will happen is all the resources will be poured onto things that result in people taking them elsewhere. When a church is mature, it can send people elsewhere. 
And so there's mature individuals, and there's mature local churches, and there's the church as a whole. And we think about the maturity of those different things. The goal is to mature as an individual, to see your local church matured, so that it can help to see the global church matured. And so that process is what we're called to use our gifts in. Now, we have many members. That can lead to chaos unless there's order. Christ provides unity of command by giving us a singular objective, his glory. He gives us a law word. He gives us a doctrine word. He also gives to us officers. Now, we are members of each other, and we are reminded of that to have a motive to obedience to bring about lawful order and to seek each other's good. And the unity that we have with each other is supposed to remind us of the idea that your interest is my interest. That if I love you, it's a way of loving myself. Point 11. In recognition of the gifting that differs according to the grace given, let us use the gifts. Okay, so we have to recognize gift and character. If we fail to do that, we're violating the ninth commandment. We're not acknowledging truth about others. We need to recognize station according to gifting and character and put people into station who have gifting and character. So you recognize and you put people into station. And then you are content with your gifting and station and you seek to use it well and to improve it and to be ready for higher calling. So these are the ways of thinking about yourself with humility. So now let's look at the gifts, the particular gifts. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. I've got the Greek below there because these words are going to be referenced and I'm going to have them along the way. Now, the Shorter Catechism in questions 25 to 27 talks about the prophetic, priestly, and kingly service of Christ to the body. And so you need to think about those. There's an order to them. You should study those questions. And in brief, the prophetic has to do with teaching and correcting. The priestly has to do with self-sacrificial service, a praying to get, so a relational intercession, a keeping of boundaries for holiness. The kingly has to do with providing and protecting, getting stuff done. So those are the things. So these gifts need to be used in that way to pursue that kind of service. And so I'm going to show you these gifts and how they, what office they most relate to. And so we'll talk about that. So the gift of prophecy. If you have the gift of prophecy, which none of you do, I don't either, let us prophesy in accordance with the analogy of the faith. That's the, the actual language. The, uh, you can see it there. I've got the Greek sitting there. And it's, look at, it, it, the, thing, the word that looks like it starts with a K. Okay, that's, that's kata. It's according to the analogion of the faith uh, is, is the idea there. So the word analogion, I'm sure this shocks you, but the word analogy comes from that. Okay? So the analogy of the faith is a way of referring to the systematic connections of the faith. So scripture interprets scripture, or there's this relating of scripture to scripture. You interpret spiritual things with spiritual things. That's the analogy of the faith. So the systematic, logical ordering, connectivity, coherence of the system of truth. If you're a prophet, you're supposed to prophesy in such a way that you don't contradict what came before. You know how you know if somebody's a false prophet? If they contradict what came before. So all of the claims to prophecy that are not in the Bible fall apart from that. God has predestined 
false prophets to prophesy in such a way that can be shown to be incoherent with the prophecy that came before. And so, prophets are called to to prophesy in a systematic way that is coherent with what came before. In other words, to not prophesy falsely. And this rule would be applied from the greater to the lesser to lesser teaching offices. And also to your own thinking. When you think, when you pursue the knowledge of God, do not think incoherently. So it's popular in our time to think it's really pious to say contradictory things about God. God is so great we can't possibly understand him. That's nonsense. That just means what you're saying is false. Either at both points or just one of the two points. And so Karl Barth, Cornelius Van Til, uh, Herman Bovink, famous names all of whom talk about the idea that you can't actually take the things that God says about himself and really understand him, and that, in fact, there's this apparent contradiction in the Bible. Van Til even said, at every point. So, for example, he would think that the Bible appears to contradict itself at every point, if he means what he says. When it says, for example, to not murder... And when it says that we should punish murderers, that doesn't seem to contradict itself to me. It doesn't seem to fit together well. But the idea that every point of the Bible contradicts itself would lead to that kind of nonsense. He obviously doesn't actually believe what he said. He wrote lots of books trying to show the coherence of different parts of the Bible. But that kind of view about the incoherence of Scripture is going to make it so that you can't actually know if somebody's prophesying according to the analogy of the faith. So, all teaching and all thinking ought to be logically coherent. When you find yourself to be contradicting yourself, you need to repent of being illogical. So that's the first gifting. There's this gifting of thinking and speaking and teaching with clarity and coherence. The next gifting, ministry, is the same root word in Greek for the office of deacon. Okay, so we talk about the word deacon is, is literally just means minister or servant. So if service in serving. Now, prophetic gifting, like I said before, I'm sure would shock you that that fits with the prophetic, prophetic office. This service relates to the priestly, the concern to, to care about relationship, to intercede, this idea of engagement with the persons and the relationship building and the preserving of holy relationship. But this is not specifically talking about the diaconal office. This is talking about service in a broad way. Now, service is a pretty broad idea. What can you do of value that's for benefit of others? What can you do of value that's for benefit of others? If you take your ability to generate value and to help other people and use it to generate value and help other people, you are using your gifting rightly. And, you know, anybody who's been in management, any sort of business, knows that what you're looking for is employees who will solve problems and you yourself really just try to solve problems. And the idea of a job description is kind of like something that makes you laugh, right? So the idea that there are problems to solve, right, That's service. It involves rational thinking based upon a concern for the relationship. And so last time I emphasized the order of operations in terms of your locality of duty. Who should you serve? 
Who should you help? Well, from the more obligatory connection to the less. You, you go from the closer obligation to the further obligation. And so that service is rationally applied. But I'll tell you what. What you could do is you could go into a sort of analysis paralysis where you say, I'm not sure which service is the closest or the best to do or whatever. Okay, if you're not sure and you've got multiple ideas that you think are good, just do one of them. And when you complete that, move to the next one. And at a certain point, you will have too many things that you think need to be done, and you will really be pushed to prioritize them. But start providing service. And so, use your gift of service to serve others in the household, then in the body, before giving your service to others without just cause that are further away. Charity starts at home. Now, the next idea is if the doctrine in the teaching, it's if the didascon in the didascalia, okay, so the, the root word there, if in the teaching, then in the teaching. But it's like if in the doctrine, you know the word teaching has two meanings, right? You could say it's like teaching is a verb or teaching is a noun, okay, so the doctrine, the teaching. Uh, versus the noun, or versus the verb of, of teaching, to teach. Okay, so if you have this gift of well-ordered doctrinal thought, then share that with others by teaching. Now, we all think of teaching, and we think about the public teaching ministry. Teaching used to be done all over the place. Private teaching should occur way more often than public teaching. I get like three hours in front of you, and not really even that, but I get like three hours in front of you across two services. You have the whole rest of the week, which is a hundred and something or other hours. You get to sleep during some of them. During the rest of the time, you're looking for opportunity to speak truth. You need to argue with yourself, you need to do good works, and you're looking for opportunities to communicate truth. And so, the more well-ordered your doctrine is internally, the more you can use the gifting externally. Now, this is a sort of prophetic gifting. Everyone has prophetic gifting who is a Christian. You are to use the gift of didactic teaching to edify others in the body with didactic teaching. You should organize your thoughts. You should see things systematically. And get good at pedagogy, which just means get good at teaching. So, when you're trying to teach other people, there are cues. If you've been talking a while and they seem like they're eager to get out of there, you've done something wrong or you've said something right. One of the two. Maybe both. But so the issue is you go, how can I learn to communicate with clarity Communicating truth with clarity and brevity and organization. Calvin had, had three things that he thought were the most important things for communication. Truth, first. Clarity, second. Brevity, third. Now, part of clarity is organization. You can make it easier to process or harder to process. Right, so my handout is an effort to, to help with clarity. And so the idea of trying to make things more organized and make it easier to follow along that is 
the idea of, of clarity there. So you work on that. If you don't understand an idea with clarity, you are not going to be able to communicate it with clarity. And so the first thing is learn. And learning is hard, and learning requires humility, and not knowing feels embarrassing, and asking questions feels embarrassing sometimes. So when I met my wife, I fell in love with her because she asked great questions. And that made me know that she was smart. It also indicated humility. And then she would seek to understand it and be able to communicate it back and would, if she thought something was possibly not right, try to argue back. And when she was shown something, she would go, okay. Or she would say, I need time to think about it further and to come back. And then she would actually come back. So that... That process, asking questions, think about this. Anytime you've ever explained anything you care about and somebody asks an intelligent question, you know your heart leaps. You're like, you're listening and you care. So the asking of questions is not something that we shouldn't be, should be embarrassed about. We should ask questions to seek to learn. And that is the way we grow in learning and it helps us to stay engaged. And so I think it's a travesty that most churches, churches do not allow heads of household to ask questions after the public teaching because that encourages a sort of shutting down and shutting off of the mind. The asking of questions allows when there's something you're frustrated about that you think is false, you can go after it. If you don't understand, you can ask about it. Those things make it so that there's opportunity to engage in a greater way. Now, the next gift exhortation. The exhortation is kingly speaking. Exhortation is literally uh, you know, this idea of, of, of giving strength. The word is often translated as comfort, which is C-O-M is with in Latin. Okay? And then fort, forte is strength. Okay, so you've heard of the Holy Spirit being called the, the comforter, the paraclete. Okay? This word for exhortation is parakalon. And paraklese. Okay, these are the idea of, of speaking to give strength. So that's kingly speech. It's speaking. It helps people to be empowered to do things, to get things done. So we're to speak in such a manner as to give strength. That's a gifting that is important to have. And because of the fact that sometimes the people who are really good at doctrine are not particularly motivating, but are actually really good at getting people to sleep, right? Because of that... There's this danger that one person doing all the teaching, there's not going to be a lot of paracleting going on, but there will be a lot of sleeping going on. And if there's somebody who's really good at motivating, they're not going to give a lot of knowledge, right? So a lot of raw, raw, but what again? And so these things, if we have both, if there's a doctrinal teaching and an exhortation to give strength, those things fitting together make it so that there's more power to the congregation to be able to do things, to be effective. And so having multiple teachers allows there to be different emphases as different people are more gifted in terms of being able to communicate doctrine, to be able to care about the needs and the things of the particular people in terms of a priestly way. And then there's the exhortation in terms of kingly speech to get things done and to organize, to motivate. So this exhortation is mission-oriented speech. Let's do this. It's power-oriented speech. We can do this. 
It's honor-oriented speech where you praise somebody, express gratitude, say, that was well done. I'm satisfied with this. It's on the other side, the idea of shaming and causing regret and showing displeasure. Trying to have those things in a well-rounded way, the motivational and disciplinary type of speech. It's reward-oriented speech. If you do this, then... It focuses on the horrors to be avoided. It focuses on the good things to be obtained. It tells us what to put off, what to put on. It's a rebuking with chastisement and a correction with encouragement. This is instruction in righteousness, a discipline in training. Exhortation is absolutely necessary for the health of the body. It is necessary to be useful. It's necessary to get things done. And this should be used in everyday life a lot. So this is a gift that's not just for public teaching. Alright, so the idea of, of giving. Okay? The giving one is to give in sincere freeness. What does the uh, King James say? It says, uh, He who gives with liberality. So, this idea of giving, it is often the case that people have tried to make this into the action of the, off, of the public office of the deacon. The, public, the deacons don't give. You don't give other people's things. <laughs> you distribute other people's things. The giving is the giving of property, right? Welfare is not giving anybody anything out of charity. Welfare is stealing in order to distribute other people's stuff, and it's very valuable to get votes. Okay? So the diaconate can be used the same way. The idea that the giving is by the individuals who produce the wealth and in the producing of the wealth, give it. Now, I want to suggest to you that the ones who are producing wealth oftentimes are the ones who have the gift of ministry. They are finding needs and filling them and earning wages in so doing. And so, you also can look at um, the idea of, of ruling well, And those things, the idea of ruling, the idea of giving, the idea of service, these things have to be done in ordinary life. They have to be done in the household. And that's how wealth is generated. The the idea that God gives power to make money, Paul says, he who steals, let him steal no longer. Let him do work that he has something to give. You work in order to have something to provide for yourself, for your own immediate duties, and you have excess that you can give. Generating wealth is a good work. And that wealth needs to be deployed. And so you do that work so you have something to give. So the ones that work hard, it's funny, you know, people make fun of capitalism and capitalists, and there's this Scrooge McDuck idea, right? The idea that the ones who work really hard are the greedy ones. All the greeds on Wall Street, definitely not in Washington, D.C. Right? The people who work hard to make money, greedy. The ones who tax hard to use other people's money, not greedy. Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely, when it's in the private industry, but certainly not in the federal government. Right? This is the culture. This is what we are taught to think. It's not the case. And so the idea of working hard to make things... Now, don't get me wrong. American corporations are horrifically liberal and corrupt and godless. What I'm trying to express is that we need to see that in 
the terms of power to take that and not so much in the making of the money. And so you were called to be productive and to make money so you have it to give. So you do that in private hospitality. You do it in generosity to individuals. You do that in tithing and free will offerings. But the giving with liberality, what is this liberality? It's a willingness to give. It's a freeness to give. It is a a seeing of the gifts that you have as ultimately God's property. And this caring for other people and sacrificing of yourself, right? What is property? Property is a proxy for time. How did you get property? By time spent to generate it or maintain it. Or somebody who died gave it to you after they spent that time. The property, you can give service, you can bless other people with time, you can also bless them with property. And when you give up property, you can't get it back except by spending time. And when you give up time, you can't get it back. So this idea of giving with freeness, there, let, me, let me show you the opposite of that. Proverbs 23, verses 6 to 8 is the opposite of giving with freeness, giving with liberality. Do not eat the bread of a miser, one who has an evil eye. Right, so the evil eye is this idea of they look upon you with evil. So don't, don't eat the bread of somebody who is showing evidence of actually not liking you or not wanting your good. Don't desire his delicacies. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Right? As you think you are, you are first and foremost your thoughts. As you think, so you are. He may say, eat and drink, but what he thinks is what's real. He says to you, eat and drink, but his heart is not with you. The morsel you've eaten, you will vomit up and waste your pleasant words. Right? Somebody who is giving to you without liberality will find a way to extract it back. This idea of are there strings attached? So, liberality allows for that giving to occur, and the desire is not to harm the person. Now, sometimes people think, well, you know, if the Christian church has diaconal giving to people to help them, but to put them under discipleship, isn't that giving with strings attached? Sure, but there's strings for your good. The idea of helping in order to help more, as opposed to helping in order to control to use. So somebody who just gives and doesn't care about your end result, that's just a lazy way of putting you off. Right? We tend to think in America that if we can just give the money to the person and I don't have to talk about it anymore, that's the way of solving the problem. That's the way of absolving the guilt and getting away from the situation. It's much harder to give and then seek to see the person helped out of the situation. And so the giving and seeking to influence to good. That is what we're called to do. And that allows you, that's even more risky than just giving. This is true liberality or freeness. You go, I'm giving, that probably generates goodwill, I'm going to use up that goodwill seeking to help this person to reform. And when they probably hate me afterwards, I will have used up all of my goodwill from the stuff I gave them, and they will now speak badly of me. Okay, that's what tends to happen 
when you give with liberality and seek to help people to reform. Is it's, that's the result. And you know what? God blesses you for it. He will help you have more integrity, to be less afraid of men, and he will give you rewards in the next life. It will make you more productive and less slowed down and less concerned about the opinions of others. Liberality with integrity, sincere freeness, generosity of spirit, nobility of attitude, magnanimity of mind. That is what this virtue is. You give with that. Every time you trade anything, you're giving one thing for the sake of getting another thing. You think you're getting something that's better than what you're giving up. When you trade the continued possession of your property for fulfilling the need of your brother. And you do that with the knowledge that it will have benefits that accord with reality as well as supernatural blessing from God. That is going to be good for you. When you give, you need to give in the name of Christ. It needs to be explicitly Christian. When you give, you need to give in faith. You don't give what you need to perform a duty. You consider if the roles were reversed, would you think the other person was being unwise? You argue against your own double-mindedness in yourself. Now, the, the opposite of, of giving with liberality or sincere generosity is giving with double-mindedness or a single-mindedness that you are trying to hurt the person. Right, so, so you have single-mindedness that you're trying to hurt. There's also the double-mindedness about, I'm giving this, but I'm not really happy about it. Right? Not being a cheerful giver. So you can be a cheerful giver by knowing, this is for my good, this is for their good, I will be blessed for this. It's better for me to give this to meet their need than for me to hold it. And that can be time or property. Liberality depends upon the doctrine of stewardship. So studying the Eighth Commandment helps with that. Okay, um, holding on to things loosely for page 7 and desiring to have resources deployed wisely. You hold on to them loosely by saying, this isn't mine, it's God's, and I need to deploy these resources for the glory of God. And that's how I seek my own good. This relates to self-sacrificial service. And I already talked about time and property and how you're giving one or the other. So let's go to 18. He who rules is to rule with zeal. We think of it as a bad thing for people to want office, right? We generally think anybody who wants office is the bramble bush. Okay? Well, what if the olive tree or the fig tree or the vine had been zealous to see good public rule? Would that have been better than the bramble becoming king? He who desires an office desires a good work. One of the major motives for people who are well-ordered but not wise enough to desire the good work is the fear of being ruled by inferior men. If I don't rule, the bramble will rule is a fear that often drives men to office. That's what George Washington had in multiple cases. He did not want to be president he did not want to be president for a second term. And when he got to end his second term, he famously said to Adams, you are safely in, I am safely out. We shall see which of us is happier. So this 
idea that public service is difficult, the desire to fill it out of duty to avoid the rule of worse men, to avoid the rule of evil men. We are to rule with zeal, knowing that it's our desire to accomplish good work. So this word for rule, it's translated variously. I have uh, its usages in the New Testament here. Uh, the, it's translated variously as rule, maintain, lead, be over. And so we're called to self-rule. We're called to rule within the house. We're called to rule in the church. And there's rule in the state with zeal. And I gave you that parable before, so I thought I'd leave that there in terms of thinking about ruling with zeal badly. Right? But the idea of ruling with zeal in the state would be a desire to see the wicked punished and to see the innocent protected, to see Christian liberty preserved, to see biblical justice administered, to see Christ exalted in the state and him acknowledged as the king of kings. But so we look at this idea of rule. If you rule yourself, Titus 3.8, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Now, really, lead or rule good works. How do you rule good works? By doing them. Be careful to rule good works. But you're managing good works. You put yourself to that. These things are good and profitable to men. Be careful to make it so that you are putting yourself in charge of good works. And to do that zealously. Titus 3.14 And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to rule good works, to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. I'm, I'm telling you, this is the principal thing that you need to take out of this. It's your duty to rule good works. It's your duty to take charge over good works. You need to find good works to do and put your authority and power into it. And so you do that by studying the law of God so you know what good works are. And then you don't just stop there. You put yourself into it. You throw yourself into the work with zeal. And it's a lot easier to do it with other people. And so you do it as a body. You do it in an organized way. And so this idea of working together to get stuff done. You know whose permission you need to get stuff done? Nobody's. God told you to do it. You don't need to come to the church and say, you know, I was thinking about doing this good work with my good gifts in my own house. Great. You own it. God gave you the power. Do it. If you do something wrong, you might get a knock on the door. Oh no. If I do works, I'm accountable. Because if I sin in the process and it's in front of more people, then somebody might tell me that was wrong. Great. So don't do anything. Be worthless. Right? This, is, this is what we tell ourselves. You own your body. You own your soul. You own your house. Do things. Be careful to rule good works. You have dominion. God has made you kings and priests and prophets. Do things. If you rule a house, you already have a little squad. You have a little platoon. You go, I don't know. What, what, who am I going to organize? I don't know. you got kids and a wife. Tell them to help you to do the good works. 1 Timothy 3, 
one who rules his own house well. This is, this, is, this is when you're judging if a man is fit to be an officer. Ask, how well does he do at ruling his little platoon? How much work is getting done? Have they dug latrines or are they just living in filth? Right? What are they doing to organize the labor to solve their own problems? 1 Timothy 3, 4-5 One who rules his own house well having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Right? The words in bold are the, word, the same word in Greek that's, that's in this passage in Romans. 1 Timothy 3.12 Let deacons be husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. In the church, right... Romans 12.8 is in the context of the church. Okay, The idea of those who have leadership or rule but do it with zeal or diligence. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you, ruling you, in the Lord and admonish you. 1 Timothy 5.17 Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. That word especially is often grabbed onto to say, ah, there's ruling elders and there's teaching elders. The word especially there is the same word that's used earlier on in 1 Timothy where it says, the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. How do, is Jesus the Savior of all men? No, He is not. The especially those who believe is specifically, or namely, those who believe. The elders who rule well, namely, here's how you see if an elder is ruling well. Is he laboring in word and doctrine? If not, he's not doing his job, fire him. That's, that's what you do with elders who aren't laboring in word and doctrine. The ones who are, you give double honor to. So, the last thing here is acts of mercy with cheerfulness. We talked about this a little bit before. God chooses to show mercy. This, is, this word for mercy is only used one other place. It's actually in Romans 9.16. And it talks about God's the one who chooses to show mercy. It's not of human will. It's not of your own power. It's of God's mercy. Okay? So then, if you're giving mercy, doing it with cheerfulness. And remember, we're reminded of this because those who need mercy have done something wrong. <laughs> so the word for cheerfulness here is chleritatai, which is the root of Hilarious. Okay, now that can be translated as propitious behavior, prompt, willing, cheerful behavior. The, the word is also the root for the hilasterion, which is the Greek word for the mercy seat, like over the Ark of the Covenant. So, the idea that propitiation causes the one who had wrath before to not have wrath, but instead to have cheer, to have good favor towards you. So we're supposed to show mercy with cheerfulness. When people need help, it's normally because they did things that were foolish and they're in a time of discipline from God. And so we're tempted to not be cheerful. But we're told to be cheerful. And so let's be honest. I have made so many horrific mistakes in my life that it is shocking that I get to stand in front of you and preach about the mercy of God. 
if we have anything, it has been given to us in mercy, and we can give it to bless others in mercy. And so we need to be quick to look upon our own sin, to remember our own sinfulness, that we have been given much, and now we are able to help other people in mercy. Sometimes people who need help are in testing, and we need to be careful to not be harassing a Job. And so we help them, we show mercy to them cheerfully. We pray, forgive us our debts, and we forgive our debtors. And we are to take that attitude, and rather than being self-righteous, we're to have integrity. And when we have integrity, we realize that we can give mercy cheerfully, because we also have received mercy. Now, the other thing I want to point out is, biblically speaking, in reputation, we can oftentimes look upon people's failures that happened eight years ago or ten years ago or five years ago when the person has shown virtue since then and we continue to hold that against them and think, here's this person, this defines their character. If somebody's shown the alternate virtue for a year and you still think of them as whatever this vice was that they did over a year ago, then you are just holding on to that without forgiveness and not choosing to see the fruit of God in the gifting that has taken its place. We are called upon to see that people change. Do you know why churches ship in pastors like imports? Because nobody can get over anybody's past failings. And it's so much easier to bring in somebody you don't know who doesn't have any history or any failings in that group than it is to see people who failed and have grown and see them put into office and say, who is this that rules over us? Isn't he the son of Jesse? You know, just knowing a person's past. Jesus didn't have anything they could say he'd done wrong. But just because they knew his dad, they're like, well, he shouldn't. Who is this? Why is he, why is he doing this? So that idea that we need to not hold on forever to the failings of each other. So when people receive help in mercy, we do it cheerfully. And when they put on the alternate attributes and give us a year of displaying that, we need to say, wow, look at that turnaround. And so therefore, we can deal with each other and see their future giftings put to public good use as opposed to having a place where people cannot grow and cannot have their weaknesses on display. Self-righteousness is undermined by mercy. Our kindness to each other encourages repentance so that we don't hide our failings. So this is the kind of culture that's necessary for us to have service with each other by each other's side. The alternative is that we have a professionalized system of officers who are of a different class of humanity and we get rid of the priesthood of all believers, which is what Protestants have generally done. So let's not do that. Let's do what the Bible says. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with floor rights. Mr. Nye. Thank you for your teaching, Larisse. I just wanted to uh, just get a quick clarification. Um, I think when you were talking about um, leading the ruling with diligence and you were exhorting us to, um, to find good works to do and put our efforts into doing them, um, you said that um, we own our body, we own our soul, we own our homes. I believe what you meant 
is in terms of responsibility. Like our God has given us authority, and and we are to exercise authority, um, and that you do not mean that uh, that God is not the actual owner of all things that, in, in the, the higher sense. Yeah, so God owns everything, and he delegates ownership, and that's called stewardship. And so you own your own soul, you own your own body, you own your property, and God owns you, and he has a higher claim and can tell you what to do with it. So that clear up your concern? Yeah, yeah. Great. Great. Mr. Cordova? Uh, thank you, Alderese. Uh, one quick question regarding... Speaking and exhorting others with zeal versus coming across hatefully or with hatred. Could you give some advice as far as that's concerned? Sure. So the text doesn't say to exhort with zeal, although I think we should exhort with zeal. Uh, but I, I think the, so the question is how can you exhort with zeal without seeming hateful? Um, I think that we oftentimes seek to speak strongly towards people that it's a waste of time for us to speak to and those are the people that it's the easiest to come off as hateful towards um, most of our exhortations should be towards each other in the body and if there's relationship and standing there it's going to be really easy to not come off as hateful and if you do it's going to be relatively easy to go and get that resolved by apologizing um, and in terms of the public sphere, when you're dealing with scoffers, you're not really exhorting them. You are rebuking them, right? Um, and what you're trying to do is actually shatter their strength. Um, and so the, the idea that that appears hateful needs to be responded with, these people are trying to destroy good things and to destroy beautiful things, and I am seeking to fight them. And so war looks angry. Um, and so we live in an effeminate age that does not like to see men acting like men. When men act like men, even in the church, it is generally shouted down and poo-pooed, right? So that's going to be the response. But some men will respond to it and will see that. And that the concentration of those who repent and believe is what we're called to do. We gather the church. And the gathering of the church is going to be in opposition to the world. It will raise the antithesis. That doesn't mean you foolishly yell when it's a bad idea to yell, right? You have to study communication. You have to study what's appropriate when. Uh, but there's a lot of awful going on. And the general response to you know, public homosexuality, public abortion, uh, the you know, public witchcraft, prayers to false gods in the public assemblies and in... You know, the legislature, all this stuff. But where are the men shouting this down? Where are the angry voices saying stop? Right? There, there need to be angry voices. And so the absence of angry voices is a problem. Um, so, but we shouldn't spend more time doing that than we should gathering and working to build. And we need to find good works to do here. And then you, you typically are using that to defend or when you're trying to take some new position of power. And so finding decisive points to put our effort to is where we're going to concentrate those. Because it's tempting to just release anger by shouting at the world and fighting on all the boundaries and dissipating all of our energies. 
So we have to intentionally focus our efforts, build things, pick places to expand, and fight there. And sometimes angry voices are legitimate. So to train in how to when to speak angrily legitimately versus not would take a little bit more time, but the short version of it is if somebody's doing something that's basically a violation of one of the named commandments in the Ten Commandments, it's a worth yelling at thing. Thank you. Thank you. So, Devin. earlier you talked about uh, how murder is a sin and whatnot, and then, but in Deuteronomy uh, 11, 21 12, it says if you commit a sin worthy of death, then you should be hung by a tree. So, what's your opinion on the justification and like how the state has authority to give like death penalties and whatnot compared to? that not being a sin compared to like if some random person was to give someone like a death penalty or whatnot. So I want to know like your view on that. Great. Um, so the question is uh, murder versus justified homicide. And in particular the state and the use of the sword to exact vengeance. So um, killing is the general activity, the category that we think about that in general we should not kill. Uh, you should better translate you shall not kill as you shall not murder. That's most of the usages are going to be referring to that, uh, that kind of idea. And so you go, okay, what's justified homicide? Justified homicide is any defensive use of force for yourself or another. Um, you can uh, use force for vengeance when you are a public authority put aside for that purpose. And that occurs depending on the situation in different ways, but in ordinary course, if you have a nation that's not in chaos, right, then you're going to have a public process of the selection of officers, and they are going to be given the authority to exercise vengeance. Now, God established the state in Genesis chapter 9 and gave it the authority to exact vengeance. Um, and so the exaction of vengeance is we are given laws that tell us what crimes are in the Old Testament. And it tells us the maximum lawful penalty. And so some crimes have a maximum lawful penalty of death. And some of them have a requirement of death. Murder requires that we execute a person. So the failure to execute murder, uh, to execute murderers is itself a sin that brings curse on our land. Um, so then just warfare is a state that is based upon ongoing fighting. It's a mixture of defense and vengeance seeking. And so warfare is a state of, of sort of a, of a chaotic state between two states that are confronting each other, and the two states are creating a sort of anarchy, and they are fighting to create order. And one side is just, and the other side is unjust, or both are unjust. And so it is only lawful to engage in warfare when you are fighting for a just cause. And when you are fighting for a just cause... The Bible gives limits on what to do and how lawful war works. Um, so, the God, so God gives authority to kill under certain circumstances, and uh, those, are the, those are the kind of broad outlines of it. Does that answer your question? You also answered, like, a, I'm going to have a second question, a statement of, is it a sin for the state not to kill a murderer or, and you kind of answered that as well. So yeah. thank you. Thank you. Okay, anything else? Great. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your law. We ask that you would help us to use gifts well, to identify these gifts 
by knowing their definitions and then looking to see how to employ them, finding them in each other, seeking to divide up work based upon gifting and based upon the urgency of needs. I ask that you would help us to rule ourselves well and to rule over good works, that you would help us to have strength to do them and to focus them in strategic ways. Father, I ask that you would bless the homes of this assembly, that you would cause them to be in good order, you would cause them to be fruitful and prosperous, that you would help us to exercise dominion and to do good work. I ask that you would give us officers, that we could be in good, mature order, you would increase the number of homes, increase the depth of the knowledge of you in those homes. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ.